Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. A reading from the Psalms. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival festal processions with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. And the Gospel according to Mark. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door, outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And this, my friends, is the gospel of the Lord. Many years ago, I took a bit of a break between my sophomore and junior years of college. And when I returned, I had some expectations. I, I expected to enter into a a college community of of deep learning, of rich conversation, maybe some evening chats by a fireplace in a book-lined study with my professors and some fellow students. I imagined all kinds of really cozy academic experiences. The problem was that the break I took was for four years, 
while I served in the Navy. And when I returned to school, Emily and I were married. We had a two-year-old daughter. We lived off campus. We had jobs. And our goal was just to survive this whole experience. And, and while my overall college time was actually pretty good, my whole romantic expectations of scholarly bliss were never completely realized. Today, Palm Sunday, can be a time to reflect on expectations and their impact on how people see the world around them. Clearly, the, the people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem had some expectations about him and, and what he was about to do for them. Now, it's likely that some Roman soldiers at first also had some concerns when they heard about this popular rabbi entering triumphantly into the city, but when they saw this young peasant riding a donkey and surrounded by his ragtag followers, they probably put their swords away and then just went about their soldiering business. Our gospel text this morning is often titled in our English Bibles as Jesus' Triumphal Entry into Jerusalem, or something to that effect. <clears throat> but Mark chapter 11 is also a turning point in the entire story. As Jesus indeed enters Jerusalem, but Golgotha, the, the place of his coming death, lurks ominously in the background. This entry into Jerusalem is the prelude to Jesus' crucifixion. But for the people greeting Jesus, the, the memory of the words of the old prophet Zechariah must have risen up and given them hope that the liberation of Israel might actually be at hand. And they would reflect perhaps on these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. You can find that in the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 9. The humility of the new monarch might have seemed a bit contrary to what people would have expected, but, but they still would not be shy about pinning their hopes on the prophetic voices from the scriptures. I mean, who knows how God might fulfill his purposes for Israel. If the true king of Israel is this man, Jesus, riding into the city on a donkey, then an appropriate response ought to be made. So, the people throw their cloaks and some tree branches on the path that Jesus and his donkey are taking. You know, if a high-profile person were to pass by us, perhaps at a, a parade or, or maybe some gala red carpet event that I've never been invited to, uh, it's not likely that we would find it natural to throw our coats and our wraps and our sweaters on the ground for that person to walk upon, although you might see such shenanigans at a rock concert. Uh, no, we would just video them on our cell phones or something like that. So what was going on with this crowd gathered in Jerusalem that they actually had to throw their garments on the ground for the donkey to step on? Well, there was actually a biblical precedent for that action. In the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, there's this story about the prophet Elisha sending a young colleague to anoint a commander named Yehu to be king over Israel. 
Now his name is starts with a J in English, but it's actually pronounced Yehu. You may have heard the term, that guy's just a wild Yehu. That's where that comes from. Well, once that's done, Yehu's fellow officers want to know, what happened? What was that madman prophet talking to you about? And uh, Yehu says, ah, you know these guys. He's just, just a babbler, probably a lunatic. But then they start making fun of him because they know he's holding something back, and he is holding something back. And so he tells them what happened. You know, the prophet Elisha sent this young guy to me, and he anointed me to be king of Israel. And when his friends hear that, they stop teasing him, and they remove their cloaks, and they lay them out before him for him to step upon, and they declare him to be king. So it's as though the people gathered in Jerusalem for Jesus' entry were, in a way, reenacting a story from Israel's past while their expectations were being fueled by an ancient prophecy. But their expectations were focused on a very different kind of king than what Jesus would ultimately demonstrate as the story continues in the Gospel of Mark. And so when you read through the rest of the gospel, you find that Jesus enters the city, checks out the temple, he goes back to Bethany and comes back again, and immediately upturns the tables of the money changers in the temple. Now, perhaps to some it seemed like a really good start to his new regime, and, and I imagine people were impressed to some degree, and the religious leaders just wanted to know why Jesus thought he had the authority to do what he was doing in the first place. But things were starting to look interesting, and maybe Jesus was going to turn out to be the powerful Messiah that would fulfill people's expectations. But then Jesus changes his pace. He tells some parables that clearly make the religious leaders look bad. He predicts the destruction of the temple. He argues about the, the resurrection with some Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And, and then things really begin to take a dark turn. Well, that's how we rehearse Holy Week every year, isn't it? We start with Palm Sunday, and then we gradually work our way to Good Friday when everything seems to go completely wrong. Now, of course, we look forward to the Sunday Easter celebration of the resurrection, but in the meantime, we have to travel with Jesus from triumphal entry to death on the cross, all within just a few days. The people celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem ended up having to let go of their expectations. They expected a messianic king who would liberate them from their oppressors, rising from the humility of a donkey ride to the victorious procession into the throne of Israel. Instead, they got a Messiah who willingly placed himself in the proximity of those who sought to kill him, and he ended up dying horribly in the company of common criminals. This rehearsal is important for us, not only because it keeps us in the gospel story that frames our shared life, but also because it teaches us something about having to let go of expectations. And we all have them, don't we? I mean, some expectations are just fine. We expect our friends and our loved ones to wish the best for us, to think well of us. We expect to open up a can of tomato soup and 
find tomato soup. We expect the medicines we take to do what they're supposed to do. And, and even though our leaders sometimes let us down, we ex still expect those who lead in our nation and in our communities to behave themselves and govern rightly. We expect that. But we just might need to let go of some other expectations. At various points during the pandemic, most of us have expected it to be over so that we could return to normal. And of course, we have had to let go of those expectations several times now, haven't we? And we expect that everything will ultimately return to normal once we can meet in person as a church again. But things are unlikely to be just like they used to be, and we'll have to hold our expectations loosely. And like those who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, as well as his disciples, we may even need to let go of some of our expectations about Jesus. And what I mean is that we may need to let go of our certainties about what is really important and what God is doing in our midst during this difficult time. We may need to let go of our expectations about what God is going to do going forward. It's not that God isn't doing something right now or that God won't continue to do what he intends. It's just that our expectations may blur our vision about those things. Just as Jesus' actions after the so-called triumphal entry were not predictable, neither is the work of God's Spirit predictable. Just as Jesus once told Nicodemus in that famous conversation in the Gospel of John chapter 3, he said, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see, our certainties may end up creating expectations that blind us to the real work of God among us. It's better that we hold to the confidence that God is with us and that he is inviting us to join him wherever he is going to take us. In St. Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, he relays to his readers all the hardships that he's had to endure. There have been imprisonments, beatings, a stoning, shipwrecks, and, and all manner of painful experiences. And on top of that, he was suffering from something that he would only identify as a thorn in the flesh, possibly some kind of physical affliction. We, we don't really know. At some point, Paul must have wondered what he had gotten himself into, how, how following Jesus, the true Messiah, the one who met him on the road to Damascus, would, would end up causing so many difficulties. At one point, he asks God to take this thorn away from him, and, and Paul says that the Lord then spoke to him and said this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul goes on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
this really may be kind of difficult for a lot of people to grasp. In many parts of the world, including here in the U.S., power is often demonstrated by military might or economic strength or, or in taking a stand about our rights. Even in the church at large, power is often demonstrated as, as huge gatherings and conferences or even in fights over religious freedoms and the demands for moral legislation and things like that. But in the reality that Jesus claimed was the presence of the kingdom of God, power would look different than many people over the centuries would expect. When people believe that they are holding on to power, they can feel very certain about their purpose and their destiny, no matter whether it's for good or for ill. But embracing weakness, a, a weakness that results in the perfection or the completion of God's power, allows the, the rising of confidence in the God who is continuously unfolding his intentions upon the world and inviting us to join him as he does his work. Back in 2008, as our economy went into freefall, we began to learn that no major corporation and even no nation was too big to fail. We saw the collapse of major financial institutions and we watched our economy drop into what seemed to be a black hole. It was a reminder that regardless of the apparent strength and power of an organization, there is an inherent weakness that has the possibility of ending in destruction. Have you ever stopped to think about how inherently weak churches are? at least from an organizational standpoint. I, I've thought about this a lot over the years. I mean, consider this. No one is required to attend our services, except for some paid employees, of course. No one is compelled, required, forced to give the money that churches rely on for their existence. And people don't have to show up. They can just come and go as they please. They can be a part of the church or decide not to be part of the church. If you think about it, it's a pretty fragile existence, regardless of the size of the church. I remember talking with a woman at my church several years ago who had recently come to faith in Christ. She had no prior church experience, so this whole thing was just new to her and bizarre in some ways. And one day she asked me, how we funded this operation. Uh, she said to me, do you guys get like subsidies from the federal government? Well, she was quite shocked to learn that those little buckets that we passed around each week were the entire source of the church's income. But while churches have their own share of organizational weaknesses, our power isn't to be found in institutional or financial strength anyway. Our power isn't going to be found in our structures, our money, or our programs. Our true power comes from God, who reveals his power in our weakness. And what does that power look like? Well, it looks like the power to, to turn away from our regular daily activities and turn 
to the time of worshiping God. It looks like the power to come alongside one another in listening and in prayer. It looks like the power to give of ourselves in order to serve those who are in need. It looks like the power to say no to sin and to say yes to life in the Holy Spirit. And it looks like the power to love others because God has first loved us. You know, a lot of us, and I include myself in this, have felt somewhat powerless over the last year. Work and mobility and health and other valued things in our lives have been threatened by the possibility of disease, and, and we've had to isolate and, and then dress ourselves in the garments of safety. We, we've had this giant global invisible cloud called pandemic hovering over us and seeming to try to catch each of us in a season of vulnerability. It's as though all power has been gobbled up by the monster that we call COVID-19, and we're left huddled and helpless. But that's not really true, is it? Because we who have given our lives to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ serve the one in whom true power dwells. Perhaps during the pandemic, we've become more aware of our weaknesses, whether physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual. But that doesn't mean that God's power has disappeared. It means that the power of God is being revealed to us in new ways through our own human weaknesses. You know, I really believe that if the only lessons people are learning during this time is how to be angry, how to reinforce the demanding of our rights, or how to live in fear, or how to live in despair, then they're learning the wrong lessons. Those are all fights to, to get back to what we've expected to be right and normal and even deserved. But the real lesson for us, I believe, is to learn that God's power, that unexpected, unpredictable, life-giving spirit that blows through our lives like the wind is being made known to us in new and fresh ways through our weaknesses. During this important week in the life of the church, we have the opportunity to lay down our expectations just like Jesus' friends had to do when they watched him make his way to the cross. In the weakness of suffering and death, Jesus will show us what it means that God's power is made known through human weakness. And it is this Jesus who we follow. And we follow him today into Jerusalem as he is celebrated as a king. And we will follow him to the cross. And we will follow him to the empty tomb. And even though we know ahead of time how the story plays out, we would do well to stand in solidarity with Jesus' friends who traded in their expectations for the wonder and the glory that they experienced in the risen Christ. May this be so in this season among us.